Thanks for spending time with Fusion Community Church through our podcast. These can be accessed anytime through iTunes or on our website, fusioncommunity.church. We hope you enjoy today's message from Pastor Andrew Fetter. Let's go, girls. Over the last three weeks, we've been looking at the parables of Jesus, and uh, we've dove into uh, literally three each week. Uh, so this will bring us up to the ninth parable we've covered uh, over these last few weeks. We've got a couple weeks left to go until we get to Easter. And, uh, and so there's been two midweek parable conversations that have been available online as well. Hopefully you're, uh, you're diving into those. You know, the goal through Lent is to really have a sense of walking more closely and intentionally with Christ on the way to Calvary. And so hopefully those have been some tools. And, and for those of you that are fasting, those of you that are doing specific reading plans through Lent, uh, way to go. It's amazing how when we put ourselves in, in disciplines that put us in proximity to Jesus, isn't it just amazing how much better our lives go? Uh, when, we have, when we have a sense that he's with us every single day. Um, I know that for some of these, maybe the parables that we've covered, some of them you're very familiar with, others maybe you're kind of like more uh, on the fringe, and you're like, ah, yeah, I forgot about that one. Or, um, but we're going to continue to kind of work through that uh, together. Today we're going to reflect on probably what is, studies would tell us, is the most popular or well-known parable that Jesus tells in society. Now, it's probably not the one that's most popular within the church. The church often looks at the story of the prodigal son because of the significance of what that means for us in redemption. But when we look at society as a whole, this idea of the Good Samaritan is one that is often told and retold throughout the ages uh, as, as a great lesson about how to treat one another. So it kind of transcends Christian circles. But before we revisit the story as Jesus told it, we need to understand the context he told it in. So we can really see it through the lens Jesus intended it to be looked at. Um, And I hope that this maybe puts a little bit of a different twist on the parable for those of us that have heard many, many messages and read books and done Bible studies on this very, very familiar text. Now, the main story, the main character in this story (coughs) is the one we get to in the climax, which is the Good Samaritan. Samaritans are from the region of Samaria. And uh, if you look, it kind of here's a map. It shows you kind of Samaria is squeezed in the middle of what's to the south and the north. You have Judea and Jerusalem in the south. You kind of see Nazareth and Galilee with the Sea of Galilee to the north. And Samaria is just kind of squeezed there in between the two. Um, In the Old Testament, Samaria was the capital of Israel in the north. Jerusalem was the capital of Judah in the south. So you kind of have to go through this region if you're going to go from south to north. There's kind of no other way through it with the river off to the side and the lakes. Now, in the New Testament, we read about Samaritans often. This idea of Samaritans and Samaria pops up a number of different times in the Gospels, but also in letters from Paul because it's so central in their 
uh, geography at that time. We, we know Jesus encounters a woman at a well that we're told is a Samaritan woman as Jesus and his disciples are traveling through Samaria. They have interactions with Samaritans, and, and they're alarmed at how Jesus communicates with a Samaritan woman. We have the parable we're looking at today, a fictional story Jesus tells where the good Samaritan's kind of set up to be the hero. Jesus also references the region of Samaria as a specific place the gospel will intentionally go in what is kind of Luke's version of the Great Commission in Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And there's a significant reason why for that, but we don't have time to get into that today. So Samaria is a, a legitimate and significant location in the ancient world in relationship to the Hebrew people. Because Hebrews and Samaritans hated each other. They were hostile towards each other. They didn't get along. They thought they were better than the other. And there's a long historical reason why, but the point is they were enemies. They weren't enemy combatants locked in, in physical war. But man, when, when, if you were Hebrew or, or, or you were Samaritan and you saw one of those people coming down the road, you would cross over to the other side and, and you didn't even want to have to interact with them. Um, I mean, this is really, this is the essence of racism in the ancient world. Even though there were two groups of people that would look very similar, there wouldn't be much on the outside to notice or distinguish them, where they come from is different. Their background story is different. In fact, going back into the, the ancient world, they, they thought each other, they thought they were the chosen people of God, the Jews. And then the Samaritans also believed the same thing. There were a lot of people that felt that way. But where they come from is different. They couldn't stand each other, even though technically... Samaritans and Jews are biologically related. They were distant cousins. And as we talk about the difference between the Jews and the Samaritans, you might actually say, it kind of sounds a lot like my family. We're related. But man, there's a lot of friction. The origin of the Samaritans in the northern kingdom was they were Jews that inhabited the northern region, and, and then they began to marry and start families with Assyrians that lived in the area. And so now all of a sudden, this new kind of bloodline came out. It began where it was half Jewish, half Assyrian. Those who lived in the south kind of who were, who were treasuring the pure Jewish bloodline that God would deliver the Messiah through, they saw this as kind of a disobedient act towards God. So they really despised one another. They didn't think well of each other. And so Jesus, his ministry has begun, and there's this interpersonal conflict between two groups of people he's going to interact with all the time. Two regions of the world, his whole ministry for three years is going to be wrapped up in. That's where Jesus has to preach and teach. That's the context he has to operate in as a rabbi. And Jesus has remarkable things to say about God, to say about mankind and, and sin and our souls and eternity and the, the, the reality of an enemy of God, Satan, the devil. And people are hungry to hear everything that comes out of his mouth, except for the religious leaders. They're irritated. They're irritated by the attention Jesus is getting, first and foremost. They don't know why so many people are following him, and, and, and so many are clamoring to hear what he says. But maybe what they're most irritated by is the authority Jesus seems to speak with. And they don't know where it comes from. Not to mention the power he has to do miracles. And so what are they doing? Working overtime to try and trap or expose Jesus as a false prophet. They see him as a threat. But there's a problem with that. Man, Jesus is good. Like, he's good. They try to pin him in the corner with, with theological and, and doctrinal arguments. But man, his responses are so well thought. His theology is rock solid. In fact, at times, he says things in ways that some of the Jewish leaders kind of lean in and say, I never thought about it that way. Guys like Nicodemus who are kind of hanging out in the evening to kind of listen more to what Jesus has to say, who is a Jewish leader. And we see this again in Luke chapter 10. Just before Jesus shares the parable of the Good Samaritan, 
There's something that happens we need to understand as the context for why of all the times Jesus said, now's the time to tell this story. In Luke chapter 10, verse 25, and it'll be on the screen. I invite you to, to, to open up your Bible, follow along with me on your phone, whatever. You can kind of make notes. You can copy and paste stuff, all that. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is the most important question, right? A question about eternity. But we see right away this is not a sincere question being asked from someone who wants to know the path to eternal life. There's an agenda. He wants to test Jesus. And Jesus did what Jesus often did. I joked about it last week. He responds to a question with a question. He says, well, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answers with the Shema in Deuteronomy. He says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this response, as I begin to read it, for many of us, you have it memorized. You could recite it. Yeah, love the Lord's God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, greatest commandment and second greatest commandment. Like, we know, we know that. We get that. We've heard it a million times. But do we ever stop for a moment and examine it? Think about it. Love God with everything and love your neighbor as you love yourself? How would we grade ourselves on those two scales? Anybody want to stand right now and say, yeah, I've got it nailed. I've got it figured out. 4.0 GPA in my life about consistently loving God with everything I have and, and putting the needs of others greater than my needs in my own life. I mean, this is, this is very, very, very hard to live out consistently, right? We can reflect on it, think about it. But probably every single one of us this morning can point to a moment where we are incredibly selfish for our own needs or where we were kind of hoarding something and not offering to God what, what God says belongs to him. It's a hard thing to live out with any kind of consistency. But Jesus affirms the answer. It's the right answer. But there's a lot more to the context or to the subtext than that. He says, right, do this and you will live. Now, here's the dilemma with this command. How can loving be a command? Right? How do you command someone to love? I mean, love is the kind of thing you either do organically and authentically because you, you want to, or you don't do because you authentically don't want to. I mean, if you already love something, you don't need to be commanded to love it more, right? Nobody needs to command me to embrace my wife. Nobody needs to command me to go out to eat at a Japanese steakhouse. Nobody has to command me to, to enjoy a 20-ounce bottle of Mountain Dew. Nobody has to command me to, to hang out with my kids and have fun with them. I love those things. I go out of my way to, to find time and ways and excuses to go eat at Japanese steakhouses. It, it just happens, right? It's what you love. Nobody has to command you or convince you of it. The problem is if you don't love something, no command will change that. For instance, I, I hate pickles and I hate vinegar. Meanwhile, I love fresh cheeseburgers and fresh cut fries. Uh, enjoyed one with some people in this room this week. But if someone puts pickles on my cheeseburger and covers my fresh cut fries with vinegar, I ain't touching it. You command me, eat that and love it. I'm like, I'm fasting today. <laughs> and I throw it in the garbage. I want nothing to do with it. You have ruined one of my favorite meals. No command will change the condition of our heart. Verse 29, the man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now right here, the religious scholar, he's leaning into the pinch of this command, the dilemma. Okay, how far does this go? How wide? How deep? Who do I have to define as my neighbor? 
And this is the motive for Jesus to tell the story of the Good Samaritan. So there's two things. What's the path to eternal life? And who's my neighbor? Okay, it's love God, love, love my neighbor. Who's my neighbor? And Jesus says, this is the story I need to tell. He replies with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. So he's leaving the holy place, Jerusalem, where the temple is. This guy, a Jewish man, we're told that, leaving Jerusalem, heading down to Jericho. Now, if you're in this context, you had their sandals on, you would know that's about a 17-mile, very difficult journey down 3,000 feet of elevation. So it's a very, very difficult walk. As he's leaving Jerusalem, heading down to Jericho, on this road, which you also know is incredibly dangerous, he's attacked by bandits. They strip him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along from Jerusalem to Jericho, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. Now, for most, for most of us, we look at this and we're like, man, this is a, supposed to be a leader in the church and he just walks on by me. What a jerk. Like, we kind of give him a hard time. But step into their sandals for a moment with me. Understand it from their context. First, they understand this is not a road you stop and hang out on. You don't linger. Because if they did that to him, they might do that to you. So all of a sudden, now there's an urgency to get down this road as soon as possible. Secondly, a priest that has left Jerusalem and heading to Jericho is someone that was at the temple. And they've just been, uh, they've just been purified at the temple so they can do their duties, their calling, and their assignment probably in Jericho or some other city beyond there. And according to Jewish law, if he touches any dead body, he becomes unclean, unpurified, and he cannot per, per, uh, continue on with his tasks or his assignments or his calling. So he would have to go back to the temple and, and go through the whole process. Again, it would be incredibly inconvenient, incredibly dangerous, and very expensive to help a guy that, that it doesn't look like he's going to live anyway. So these are context, contextual things that, that, that most of us today we wouldn't even consider but it's a part of the story. You can see it's kind of a little more gray. It's not as easily black and white. What a jerk. How dare he? No, there's more gray here. Verse 32, a temple assistant, which is a Levite, walked over and looked at him lying there. So he actually looked at him, kind of did a little inventory, but he also passed by on the other side. Now, a Levite's basically a priest in training, like JV squad. And if you, you could say that like if a priest is a police officer, the Levite's kind of like mall security, okay? You can envision Paul Blart if you've seen the movie, okay? Um, but, but the audience that's listening, they know a Levite's kind of following the lead of priests. And they're in training. And, and so they're to do the same as, as modeled for them. There's this incredibly rich culture where, where you, know, you would follow your rabbi. You would want to do what your rabbi did so you could be like your rabbi. Like you would want to with a priest. And so he's supposed to learn from the priest. So they would have might, might even have assumed that this Levite saw the priest pass by on the other side of the road. It's like, if he didn't touch him, I probably shouldn't either. Once again, there's gray here. Then a despised Samaritan came along. And at this, the Jewish crowd would have, there would have been an audible response like, ugh, right? Like disgust, you know? That's like telling the story to a bunch of Yankees fans about a Red Sox. A despised Red Sox fan comes, right? Ugh. Or vice versa. You're telling Red Sox fans about a Yankee fan. Anyway, when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. He can't even say the Samaritan. He doesn't even want to give, a, he doesn't even want to give credence that that's the hero of the story. 
Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. In this story, Jesus kind of unpacks for us in in an elementary, introductory way what it looks like to help our neighbor, to love our neighbor, why we love our neighbor, and he even gives us a little bit of how we can love our neighbor. So let's talk about the first one. What does it look like to love our neighbor? Well, we have to understand the Samaritan and the Jew have zero in common, really. They're nothing alike. They're altogether different. They had to, you know, this Samaritan in the fictional story had to cross a major social divide motivated only by compassion for someone in need to save this man's life. Now, couldn't we admit that it's normal and easy for us to to be willing to help somebody we can identify with, someone we can see, someone that reminds us of ourselves, maybe even at a season where we needed help. We're a little more motivated to be generous and, and full of assistance with someone that reminds us of ourselves. It's a little bit harder when it's someone we can't really connect with, the person you barely know, those on the other side of the political aisle from you, those who you feel might be suffering or going through something because of their own choices or the choices their family had made. The man or woman that you work with or work for that's been incredibly uh, aggressive towards you or has taken advantage of you at work. Those with different beliefs, faiths, or values than you have. And yet Jesus models for us that if we're following him, we are called and given the power of his spirit to be kind and generous and assist those who are nothing like us. He even says we're called to love our enemies. To those in your circle or those in society that are in need, if you're following Jesus and you choose to walk alongside the the other side of the road, offering no assistance or opportunity when you clearly see a need, that is disobedient to Jesus. What does it look like to love our neighbor? If we see opportunities to act, we have the responsibility to act. Jesus compels us to take an active role in the lives of others who are in need, not a passive role. And not to use excuses or justifications of what they've done to deserve it or what other people should be doing. If God's presented something to us, we have an opportunity and a responsibility. You know, the the essence of the Good Samaritan story is that the Good Samaritan was willing to help in a way where he would carry the burden of that person's need. Think about that in your life. Is there someone you know even right now, they need others to carry the burden of what they need? Because the Samaritan was willing to offer his own olive oil his own wine, his own bandages, his own donkey, two silver coins to provide what this guy needs to heal. Why do we love our neighbors? We'll go back to how this moment in Jesus' life began. A religious scholar asking a question of what Jesus thought about eternal life. And Jesus turns this this religious man's question upside down, right? Because he's talking about what do we do to have eternal life. That's the question. If you know anything about the the ministry, the life, the, the, the gospel of Jesus, you know the whole reason he came to earth was because we can't save ourselves. We can never live up to God's law. No matter what we ever tried to do, it would never be enough where we would deserve the presence of God and to be in eternity with Him. So God Himself, Jesus, the Son of God, who is not like us, left the holy place to come down to live like us so we could be rescued, to find bloodied, beaten, half-dead people. And Jesus puts that interesting twist in the story. He makes the despised Samaritan like no one else in the story. Not the Jewish man that's been abused and beaten. Not not the priest. Not the Levite. He's a despised Samaritan. Why didn't Jesus just say, priest came by and then passed. And then the Levite came by and then passed. And then a really kind, compassionate, God-loving Jewish man came by and helped. Everybody, go and be like that kind, generous, 
Jewish man. Everybody been like, yeah, what an inspiring story. That's great. No, Jesus uses a character that couldn't have been more different from the guy that was asking the question. And if what if one of the reasons Jesus told the story this way is because none of us, not even now, 2,000 years later, we're not supposed to identify with the priest or the Levite and the times in our lives where we've seen someone in need and we've went right on by. We're not supposed to, to uh, think of ourselves like the Good Samaritan in the times where we've seen a need and we've helped and it's felt good and we felt like we got to be a blessing. What if instead Jesus wants us to recognize the character we most identify with? is the beaten, bloodied, and left-for-dead guy on the side of the road. What if Jesus is giving the audience that day and the religious scholar a foreshadowing clue about who he was and the new thing God was doing right in front of them through Jesus? To send a rescuer to find and restore millions who have been beaten and bloodied and abandoned in the gutter of life. What if the person coming to our rescue is not like us? Someone who had every reason to hate us and be our enemy. That, that we should receive, receive their wrath, not their grace. What if while you and I were hopeless and destined to spend eternity without God, what if God chose to put himself into danger for us? What if God stopped all he was doing in, 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 on the throne and he left the holy place, going down from the holy place, willing to be inconvenienced, willing to step into our filthy, dark, broken world, filled with death as a consequence of sin, and was willing to even enter into that death with us so that he could carry the burden that's on us that we deserve to carry on himself so we could be healed and made whole. And we could be rescued. The religious leader is trying to trick Jesus, asked about the path to eternal life, and Jesus is answering in the climax of the story, and he's asking this guy, what if you were bleeding to death on the road and your only hope was an act of grace from someone you considered to be an enemy and they didn't have to stop and they didn't have to help and they didn't have to act and they didn't know you anything, but full of compassion and love, they were willing to put themselves out there to save your life. And I just want to ask you a question, a question that only you can answer. In the entire world, this is only a question only you can answer for yourself. Do you realize that this dark, broken world that has oftentimes left you beaten, bloodied, and left for dead in different seasons of our lives, maybe somebody here, somebody online is going through that right now, this moment. Have you accepted the help and generosity offered by Jesus and Jesus alone that he's making his resources that are infinite, unlimited, available to provide for your survival? To help you heal. To give you everything you need to recover from all this baggage that you've been carrying. See, Jesus came on a search and rescue mission for the lost children of God. And because of love, God wants to reconcile his estranged children. Are you estranged from God today? Do you know your heavenly father? Are you walking in step with him day in and day out? Not just are you going through the rituals or motions of religion. Do you have a relationship with God in Jesus Christ? In telling this story, Jesus is not giving a religious man more laws to live by with the promise of eternal life. He's telling this man the only hope he has in his current state is a savior to come along and lift him up from where he's at and carrying him to healing and recovery. He needs a savior, giving of their own resources to bring freedom from the pain. So why do we love our neighbors? Because we're supposed to, because we're commanded to, 
We've already talked about that. You can't command someone to love. Why do we love our neighbors? What's the motivation? Because God first loved us. And he laid his life down for us, who he calls his friend or his neighbor. That means that now we don't live the good Samaritan life to get eternal life from God. We understand we get to live the good Samaritan life because we've already been given eternal life through Christ. And I want to encourage you, you know, if you feel you're in a season, you're beaten, bloodied, left for dead, and there's hurts and habits and hangups in your life that are just dragging you down, I just want to encourage you, there is a great place for people to just love on you through that journey, a place where the broken meet the needs and serve the broken, and that's Celebrate Recovery on Friday nights. Every single one of us in this room, we're still in the process of being made whole. There's still work God is doing in us. It's not something we should be ashamed or embarrassed to admit. After all, we just sang, God turned shame into glory. So the things that you've struggled with, the things that you've battled against, Friday nights exist as a place to just walk with, with folks consistently in, in specifics as you're ready to share them on Friday nights at Celebrate Recovery. And I can promise you one thing, there'll be a group of people there that just love you. And we also have an online option now with Celebrate Recovery. So if you'd say, man, I wish I lived closer. I wish I could drive at night. You can be a part of it virtually wherever you are through Zoom. Uh, you can be a part of Celebrate Recovery. And there's a lot of info in the app um, or on our website of how to get connected there. Third question, last question. How do we love our neighbors? Think about it. If at one time you were attacked, you were robbed, you were beaten, bloodied, left for dead in a ditch, and someone who didn't have to but they chose to stopped and helped and rescued you, and you know that you know that you know you are only alive because of the kindness, generosity, and gift of one person in this world, that's how you have a second shot at life. How do you think you live after that? You keep living the same way? Or do you kind of feel this conviction and this, this opportunity to live with a whole different set of values and priorities? Do you think you'd live your second shot at life the way you used to? Or do you think you'd probably want to mimic that good Samaritan life who risked everything for you and, and begin to risk things for others as well? I mean, in this story, Jesus is attacking about 20 of humanity's ugliest problems that have always existed since sin, and he's attacking all of them at the same time. Do you see it? He's, he's attacking racism here. He, he's attacking division and polarization and what it leads to completely dis, not even acknowledging the pain someone's going through. He's dealing with hatred that's continued for generations and bitterness towards someone else for no reason. Except it's just the mindset you continue to carry. He's addressing conflict and tension and war. He, he's, he's addressing selfishness of the human heart to, and, and busyness. I mean, he's telling in the story, the priest has too much going on. It'll be an inconvenience. It'll be expensive. He doesn't want to have to turn around and come back if this guy might die anyway. He's even addressing spiritual hopelessness. He doesn't get into the story of the guy on the side of the road that sees people pass him by and leave him to die. See, Jesus, he, he wants to change the way we think, change the way we look at the world. That's where transformation happens. And our hearts transform there when we begin to look at the world the way Jesus looks at the world so that our hearts can reflect his heart, his kindness, his generosity, his grace, his sacrifice through our lives. And in this story, if our life is rescued from the brink of death, we're now whole and free. And we'll be on the lookout for others who need that same kind of rescue. Let me give you a few practical things. How do we love our neighbor? Well, one way is with courage. It takes courage to love your neighbor. 
Is that a courage you have to just kind of drum up from inside? No. Jesus gives us his Holy Spirit. That's the power that raised Christ from the dead. It's the power that gave Jesus the, uh, the uh, access to do anything that he did in ministry. So we have the access to the same Holy Spirit. We have courage. How, do we, how does that courage surface in ourselves? What do we have to do? It's not really even something we do. It's a way that we live. If we continually remember how Jesus courageously walked to Calvary carrying our cross on his back, that Jesus is the one willing to stop and help the person dead, bloodied, and, and, and left for dead. And we have a new courage to say, if he's done that for me, man, I can do that for somebody else. I can stop my life. I can pause. I can listen. I can love on them. How do we love our neighbor? With kindness. Is that a kindness we have to just kind of, we have to grit and bare our teeth and just try to be? No, it can come authentically from the power of the Holy Spirit. How? What do we do? It's not that we do. It's how we live as we remember, man, how kind has Jesus been to me? How patient has he been with me? How many times has he tended to my wounds? How many times have I shook my fist in his face? I don't want this. And he's like, I'll just wait. I'll just wait and I'll be here and I'll never go. I want to help you work through all the pain, all the baggage. If he's been that kind to me, if his kindness leads me to want to repent of my sin, knowing my relationship with him is restored and there's no longer a gap in that relationship, man, that gives us permission and power to show that kind of kindness to someone else. How do we love our neighbor? We have to create margin. Does that mean we have to sit down with our calendar and literally schedule time in? Maybe. But more than that, we need the Holy Spirit to change our desire at what we look at and think about when we set our schedule. Is it all about getting all these things done that we need to get done? Or is it all about glorifying God in everything that we do? And when we focus on glorifying God in everything that we do, then that begins to change the way we schedule our time. It begins to change the way we handle our financial resources. It begins to change the way we navigate so we have energy left for the most important things that God wants to open the door for in our lives. How do we create margin? The Holy Spirit helps us as we remember. Not something we have to do. It's a way we live. I remember, you know what? Jesus was sitting on the throne of creation and he stepped away from that busy role to come here, to leave the holy place and come here to create a, a way in which a relationship with little old me could be restored and nurtured. Where's God calling me to pause, to stop, and to be attentive to the doors he's opening for others? I, I, I'm thoroughly convinced that the more and more we reflect on how much we've been given, the more and more we give, the more and more we serve, the more generous we become. And the more and more we think about what we have that we want, that we keep, the less and less we're generous, the less and less we give, the less and less we serve. What does it look like to love our neighbor? When opportunities are evident, we act in faith to see what God, God can do. Why do we love our neighbors? Because if we've experienced extravagant, undeserved love and kindness, we get to share it with the world around us. How do we love our neighbor? We just follow his example. We, we allow him to help change the way we think and to remember all the ways that Jesus has shown us how he loves us. And we just do the same. That's what he says. Yes, go and do the same. What does Jesus do? We see in texts, in the scriptures, but we also know the promises of the Holy Spirit. He sits with us. He sits with us on the good days. He sits with us on the bad days. He gives us his power. He gives us his presence. He listens to us. He laughs with us. He cries with us. He celebrates with us. He grieves with us. He talks with us. He eats with us. He sings with us. I want to I just close with a short story. There was a man who was making a call to a family. And a little boy answered the phone and whispered, Hello, 
The man says, can I speak to your mom? And the little boy quietly says, no, she's busy. So the guy says, well, can I speak to your dad? And uh, he goes, no, he's busy too. Okay, the man's kind of curious. Boy's answering the phone. Apparently the parents didn't hear it ring. And he, he says, well, is there anybody else home that I could talk to? Yeah, the police are here. He's like, oh, okay. Now he's a little bit alarmed. Could I speak to the police officer? No, she's busy too. Immediately, this guy's scenarios start playing in his mind. Was there anybody else there? Yeah, there, there's some firemen here. It's cool. He's like, can I talk to the firemen? No, they're busy too. Now the guy's curious. He's concerned. He's alarmed. And he says, young man, what, what are all these people doing at your house? They're looking for me. <laughs> Have you discovered yet that your whole life, God has been looking for you? And he's invited others into that search and rescue journey. He's been in hot pursuit of you. And if you don't yet know if you're a child of God, he's still looking for you. For those of us that have been found, God's calling us to join him on that mission. There's people in our lives he's in full pursuit of. And he's waiting for somebody else. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. He's waiting for someone else to say, God, I want to love people like you love me. And I want to be used by you to bring them just a little closer to the one that rescued me when I was beaten, bloodied, and left for dead on the side of the road in the gutter of life. There's nothing more beautiful, nothing more powerful, nothing more exciting than getting to see people begin to experience freedom in Jesus even though their world is crumbling. That's what God can do. From us, with us, in our mindset, seems impossible, but with Him, all things are possible. Would you bow your heads? And I just want to say, if you're here, if you're joining us online, and you don't know where you sit in relationship to God, but you believe Jesus gave his life for you, today you can say, yes, I believe Jesus is my Savior. He's made me new. And I want his Holy Spirit in my life. I want that forgiveness. I want to know my Creator. There's nothing you can do to get that. You just have to say, I'm willing to receive what Jesus has already done. And so you can very simply become a follower of Jesus by saying yes. You just say yes. And that's what, that's what conversion is. It's saying yes to the invitation of grace from Jesus. And then discipleship is continuing to say yes in every other area of life. Because the rest of our lives, God is going to lead us to next steps to take. And he's going to say, okay, you've trusted me till now. Do you still trust me? And we're going to say yes or we're going to say no. It starts with that first yes of relationship with him. Lord Jesus, we thank you and, and we praise you for making the way when there was no way. We thank you for the richness of the parables you've told that, God, we could, we could spend every Sunday for a year talking about this one story and there would be more than enough content and subtext in it to look at it from 52 different perspectives communicating 52 or more different truths that you want us to understand. We're reminded that you're, the, the Bible is not, it's not a book. It's not even a collection of books. It is the word of a holy God so that we can understand who you are, so you can be revealed to us, and you can help us see the freedom in life that you've created and redeemed us to enjoy. To find our satisfaction only in you and to enjoy this life with so many beautiful things you've placed within it. 
Lord, if there's anybody here that's ready to say yes in faith, would your Holy Spirit just lead them right there to that precipice to say, yes, I believe. And would they have this sense they've been redeemed, that they would know they are now a child of God, no longer in rebellion with you, but they've been, they've been reconciled and forgiven, and they are now a child of God. For the rest of us, Lord, maybe even right now, there's a name, there's a face popping up in our mind of someone that you have called us to join the search for, someone far from you. Lord, that's what the Great Commission is. That's the reason we're still breathing. Is there's only one thing we can take to eternity with you, with us, and that's people. Help us grow to become more and more effective and to celebrate the most important gift we have, and that is the rescue of people.